tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Consider this. Lahaina's deadly wildfires destroyed or shut down an estimated 50 wedding and reception venue sites. That has sent Maui's wedding businesses reeling. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden has been looking into the impact and joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So of that 50, at least 15 were restaurants that were lost in the fires. And this limits business to the central and south sides of the island, which already had fewer options for wedding venues. Maui already has a problem with a lack of venues due to their strict permitting laws. And what made Lahaina and West Maui so special for weddings was the views and the sunsets. At this time, folks in the wedding industry have reported most, if not all, of the weddings they were a part of for August. And through mid-September have been canceled or postponed. Kimiko Hosaki is a destination wedding designer and planner. She says the economic impact on the wedding industry is widespread. When you think about it, a wedding can bring in anywhere from, you know, just a, a couple people for an elopement, but often the numbers that you see for weddings and destination weddings are between a guest count of 50 and 150 people. So when you think about how many hotel rooms that is, how many rental cars, how many meals those people are eating out at those restaurants. Um, And then that's just kind of accommodation and travel. You move into how many people it affects in terms of an actual wedding, and you've got your um, wedding planning company and their team that needs to execute the actual wedding. Um, The average number of hours I put in with my team for one full-day wedding is often upwards of 300 hours. Wow, that is amazing, you know, and Mm -hmm. and Maui is such a big deal place for destination weddings. Absolutely, and the wedding industry is made up of so many small business owners, and often weddings are planned months, if not years, in advance. So the 300 hours Hosaki mentioned is spread out throughout that time. And what she argues is that the wedding industry and the tourism industry are so interconnected. So there's all these people that often, um, even though there may only be 20 or up to 50 people working the wedding day on the day of, there's hundreds of people behind the scenes as well, and their families rely on this um, this specific wedding or this specific industry to pay their bills and feed their families. So. When a crisis like the recent fires or the pandemic that happened even before that happens, a whole industry can get shut down in the blink of an eye because all of the weddings that were planned for those upcoming days, weeks, or months are not just affecting those specific business owners, they're affecting everybody that they employ. And then as a trickle-down effect, if you have a wedding of 100 to 150 people that have decided to cancel or even postpone their wedding, the hotel loses out on that room revenue. The rental car companies lose out on that revenue. The local restaurants lose out on that revenue of 100 to 150 people. And that's just one wedding. And when I talked to small business owners, they feared the economic downturn in West Maui will be worse than during COVID. According to a recent report from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization forecast, about half of the island's tourism accommodations are in West Maui, and businesses in Lahaina generated more than $70 million for the state monthly. They're forecasting that the county's unemployment rate will reach about 10% before tourism picks back up. Chef Brian Etheridge was set to open up a restaurant in September, and that's been put on hold because he's helping to cook meals for displaced residents. He's part of a camp asking for people to return to Maui. He says that every dollar spent here will go a long way. There's some of us that don't want anyone to come and they say, give us our, our, our space, right? Um, I, I have a complete polar opposite feeling to that because there's the rest of the island that we're going to collapse 
we're going to have an economic collapse and a mass exodus that's going to supersede COVID because COVID, we had rent abated, mortgage abated, government subsidies. We had unemployment was, you know, we had an additional, I forget what they called it, but additional payment for, for unemployment. You know, we don't have any of that right now. And the rest of the world was in it, you know, in it with us. And I've talked to a few other people in the wedding industry who say their weddings for the holiday season haven't been postponed or canceled yet, and they're hopeful it'll remain that way. Yes, I mean, planning a wedding is a big deal. <laughs> and and so, yeah, if you've got to change your venue, I mean, my gosh, the couple, I mean, you have your heart set on a particular place. And so mm -hmm. it's not that easy just to pick up and go somewhere else. Yeah. One of the ideas that people on Maui were talking about is trying to push people to the other neighbor islands or even to Oahu. But, you know, it's hard to have a wedding planned for maybe August or September and switch everything this last minute. Yeah. Your heart goes out to all those families that, whose weddings were affected, you know, local families, uh, families traveling abroad because uh, of a very stressful uh, thing and hard to recover from. Mm -hmm. And there's these conversations about whether or not it's okay to celebrate and okay to grieve. So there's a lot being balanced right now in the wedding industry. Right. People do want to be sensitive. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to HBR's Sabrina Bowden. You can find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat features a story on money being raised on social media to help those impacted by the wildfires. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so apparently this fundraiser has brought in a ton of money. Yeah, that's social media. You just can't underestimate how powerful it can be. Uh, specifically, this is uh, money raised over Instagram. It was started by Elima Leigh McFarland, who is a professional fighter from Hawaii. But uh, Elima will not be handling the money, which currently totals $2.6 million for victims. Instead, Elima has entrusted that to Tiare Lawrence, a pretty known, well-known figure on Maui, native Hawaiian herself, an organizer, an activist. And uh, it is being described as perhaps the most successful grassroots effort. Mind you, this is separate from money raised uh, by others, by Hawaii Community Foundation, that's brought in hundreds of millions of dollars. But this is specifically from this Instagram fundraiser page. And Tiare Lawrence um, will actually be the person who will disperse the money as needed. She has indicated that it will be going specifically to generational families of Lahaina. But as Nick Gruby reports, uh, details are still unclear how that's going to work out. Yeah, I mean, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, these organizations, you know, have a system to be able to, um, you know, disperse the money fairly, you know, draft up criteria. You know, how does that all work? Exactly. And the Hawaii Attorney General has actually warned of these scams that have been out there, people trying to make money, sadly, off of this tragedy. Uh, I can tell you that uh, T.R.A. Lawrence told Nick that she hasn't got the money yet. Meta, which is uh, or is a Meta, <laughs> the parent company of, of Instagram, they have not yet released those funds, that $2.6 million. But Lawrence is already saying it's going to be part of a collective. She plans to make decisions along with a handful of other Native Hawaiian activists. Archie Kalepa is one, K.L. Moku Kapu. There's actually a new organization set up, uh, Naohana. Uh, Alele Lahaina, I hope I got that pronunciation correct, but specifically the money will target the people of Lahaina. But again, the security concerns, I mean, the thing about raising money on the internet, you're not necessarily registered as a charity. Uh, Lawrence is saying that she is already working to set up a Venmo account, right, uh, to help vet as well, make sure that people are legitimate uh, before they receive the money. Uh, but they do very much want to focus on Lahaina. At the same time, Lawrence is also an activist in the area. She's been involved with Mahi Pono, which is involved with Maui Water Rights. She's run for office herself, the legislature, unsuccessfully. She's actually been involved in some of those concerns about opposing any fast-track development there in Lahaina. 
that some people have talked about. Uh, she really is focused on people grieving, letting them time to have their voice and to contribute towards what the future is going to be for Lahaina. Yeah, I mean, we've seen all kinds of celebrities uh, try and raise money. And you Jason hope Momoa, that, yes. the, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Dwayne The Rock. The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. at the same time, you know, maybe that some of that money can go to groups that maybe, let's say, wouldn't qualify for FEMA, you know, government funding, you know, whether it's the folks from, uh, from the, uh, you know, from Micronesia that, you know, may or may not be eligible for some of these funds. Uh, you yeah, know. there's a lot of things to be negotiated. This is a, a very unusual situation. Um, we can tell you that what Lawrence has told Nick, and this is an intriguing idea, she has been in discussions with a large landowner, has not uh, disclosed who that is, but the idea is maybe to purchase property near Lahaina, uh, for two purposes. One would be to set up a memorial park. This would be in addition, I'm assuming, to helping people directly with food and housing and whatever their needs are. And the other thing besides the memorial park was uh, a columbarium. That's something I actually had to look up. That's that's for uh, funeral urns. So they can store them and have a place for people to, to hold the remains of, of the victims. I think she's even talked, you mentioned Micronesian, she mentioned... Um, uh, planting ulu tree, bread food, right, which is uh, a staple for many Micronesians, many people, period. And that would be, if you will, a way to celebrate life and growth uh, from the ashes of this terrible devastation. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting idea to do, just pay homage to the history of that area and the family. Yeah, which is something that you've been reporting on, we've been reporting on, and something that we're all really moaning the, the tremendous loss of that, that critical, these physical structures, but also the memory, the spirit that is there that, dare I say, is not yet crushed. Yes, yes. All right, well, thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can um, uh, read Nick Ruby's story online at civilbeat.org. It's unclear what long and short-term impacts the wildlife debris will have on the ocean. Environmental cleanup just got underway. HBR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote is in studio to talk about the implications. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about how the dynamic of wildfires and coral reef health usually plays out in our islands, because those things don't necessarily align in our minds, but they do have really disastrous impacts on ocean health every year. Looking at just one reef, Olawalu Reef on Maui is its largest. It's about four miles south of Lahaina, and it's critically important for Maui's marine life. It also plays an important role in, in for surrounding reefs on Molokai and Lanai. It's a spawning ground, actually, to keep those reefs growing and alive. And Olawalu has been under pressure in the last decades for coral bleaching. In 2015, it lost about 45% of its coral clover. But the main threats to this reef actually come from the land above. Here's Scott Paul Crawford, director of the Maui Marine Program with the Nature Conservancy. The primary stressor for the Olawalu Kumehame Reef and, and significant for other reefs in Maui Nui is sedimentation. And the primary cause of sedimentation in Olawalu and Okumihame is fire. In Olawalu and Okumihame, there's been wildfires for decades there, um, and it's just a particularly wildfire-prone area that creates devegetation that just happens repeatedly over, over years. Then this dry, very fire-prone grass is what comes in, and each time you have a fire, the slopes are just denuded, and then they're, they're very prone to erosion. Yeah, so to talk about those consequences in a little bit more depth, basically wildfires will burn through the veg vegetation that holds soil in place. And then when rains come, they wash that sediment into the ocean below where it basically smothers vulnerable reefs. And then uh, are we seeing this anywhere else in Maui? Yes, so we are seeing this kind of across that leeward coast of Maui. I also talked to John Starmer. He's the chief scientist for Maui Nui Marine Resource Council. And that's what we were seeing in North Kihei, where we were getting, you know, five or six inches of mud covering the, the nearshore environment. And 
you do that to a coral, it's not going to survive, you know, even for a day. It, the other thing, which we've also seen in North Kia, is if you don't have very good flushing, if the currents aren't very strong, the sediment doesn't flush out. It doesn't move away from where it got dumped out. What we saw was, you know, it was basically six, seven months before uh, the very far north end of Malaya uh, Bay was getting rid of the silt. Yeah, we often hear about the like brown water advisories, right? Or, or in the case, maybe a Maui red water. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this has been common since that area has been deforested. And what happens aside from that smothering effect is that that clouds the water and it can stunt the coral's photosynthesis. So the coral isn't able to intake the nutrients that it needs in order to be healthy and then be the backbone for all marine life in that area. At the end of the day, corals just aren't adapted to survive these kinds of conditions. And then these wildfires, I mean, is it something we normally see near these coral reefs? So no is the simplest answer, even though we do have wildfires regularly. When we step back and look a little big picture, these corals are not meant to withstand the impacts of wildfires in these environments. Starmer actually called it unnatural. You just don't have these types of fires in tropical environments typically. However, that is changing. So I spoke with a representative from the National Natural Resource Conservation Service. They're under the USDA, and they basically partner with private landowners to encourage conservation practices in the U.S. and across its territories. And they're really keeping an eye on coral reef health because of its importance to agriculture and fisheries in general. And they said that they are seeing more wildfires in the Pacific in the areas that they work, particularly in Guam. But Crawford, with the Nature, Con Cons Nature Conservancy, says that there's a couple of factors that make our wildfire season particularly bad for reefs. One is the elevation. So if you think particularly on Hawaii Island and Maui, you have these steep, steep slopes. And that just allows for more runoff when areas are denuded into the coral reefs below. We also have this unfortunate situation where our richest coral reefs tend to be on the leeward sides of islands. So um, on that Maui coast where Oluwalu is, where Lahaina is, and then on Hawaii Island as well along the Kona coast, those areas are protected from wave energy. So the coral can grow much bigger in that area. But as you know, those are also the dry sides of our islands. So they're the sides that are more fire prone. And then lastly, our hurricane, our hurricane season overlaps with our fire season. So it's not uncommon, sometimes even at the same time, to have these fires that are stripping vegetation and then have rains that wash that silt into the ocean. It's like a double win. Yeah. Um, but there are many things that we don't know. Both Starmer and Crawford said that the impacts of fire on reef health aren't well researched just because we're not used to seeing them in the same environments. We don't have good impacts, for instance, on the or good understanding of the direct impacts of ash or fire byproducts on marine life. It isn't good for us, so we assume that it's not good for the reefs, but there is more work that needs to be done to really understand that relationship. And then the fire that burned through Lahaina in August creates just a completely new set of risks to reef systems. Here's Starmer again talking about that. We don't really know, but it's scary as heck. When you have an unfortunate situation where you have structure fires, you know, especially at the scale that we've seen here on Maui just recently, it is uncontrolled. You're burning everything. And fire is doing chemistry, right? It is, is causing chemical reactions between whatever is next to each other. It is almost certainly releasing heavy metals. Again, not entirely clear what the impact is on the coral reef ecosystem, but it is very clear that heavy metals can get bioaccumulated, which means that, you know, maybe they get sucked up by some little piece of plankton and then something that nibbles on the plankton ingests that, but it ingests a lot of it. So it has more of that heavy metal. And then you kind of keep, keep moving up the food chain until you get to the point where, you know, you're catching an alua that has been snacking on things in a contaminated area and actually has a very heavy, heavy metal load, so to speak. So I know a couple of weeks ago we were talking on the show about what is in the ash and debris in Lahaina, what kind of contaminants are present there. We talked about asbestos, we talked about lead, we talked about arsenic. These are all things that could end up in the water. And what Starmer is saying in, in that clip is that, one, those don't break down. So as soon as they get into the water, they're going to be there for a long time. And two, they bioaccumulate. So if you're a fish and you start nibbling, nibbling on coral or algae that is infected with these heavy metals, it's going to get into your system and then ultimately into us. And 
hopefully we don't find out <laughs> what that situation is like because there are precautions in place. So the State Department of Land and Natural Resources is currently conducting testing in the nearshore waters off Lahaina to check for the presence of these heavy metals and other volatile chemicals. And they've set up barriers around Lahaina, particularly in storm drains, to prevent runoff. But we really don't have good answers for what it could mean. So when I was researching this story, I was Googling things like, the effect of asbestos on fish. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there there just isn't information that we have readily available to respond to that. Yeah, and early on, I know they were talking about how the heat was so intense that, um, you know, it melted the fiberglass on the boats. And you think, oh, that's in the water. And the Coast Guard may have booms up in the harbor. But, oh, my gosh, yeah, if all that stuff, um, you know, runs off. And I know the EPA is involved in the, the cleanup. So, you hope that they can prevent a lot of the stuff from getting in the water in the first place. Yes, and the impacts aren't restricted to the immediate area of Lahaina or Maui as well because of the currents in this particular water basin that connects those islands. These contaminants could wash up on the shores of Lanai or Molokai, impacting their reef systems as well. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. That was HR Savannah Harriman Pote talking about how conservationists are worried about the long-term effects of the Maui wildfire on our marine environment. We do plan to hear from the incident commander for the Environmental Protection Agency about the cleanup process and plan to bring you that story tomorrow. And while we, we have Lahaina on our mind, recently a listener called in to share an idea about preserving memories of Lahaina by sharing collective stories. I have an idea to help preserve Lahaina's history. I was wondering if there could be a place that people write their memories of Lahaina and it can be preserved forever. And for us oldies, is there a way we could submit it via snail mail because we don't have computer? I hope this would help preserve our beautiful Lahaina forever. And, you know, sometimes the written word preserves things even better. God bless you and aloha. Goodbye. And we thank you for sharing that. What a a beautiful thought. Uh, We are going to talk about Lahaina memories on a future show, and we would like to hear your Lahaina stories. Share them with us by uh, writing in uh, to Hawaii Public Radio or to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Uh, and for our more mature audiences, our address is 738 uh, Kaheka Street, Honolulu, zip code for HPR comes from SMS Research. For over 60 years, providing market research, public opinion surveys, and social and economic impact studies to Hawaii businesses and organizations. Online at smshawaii.com. Today on The Daily, a Times investigation has found that U.S. passenger planes come dangerously close to crashing into each other far more frequently than the public knows. Why an aviation system known for its safety is producing such a steady stream of close calls. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. It's been about six months since D.J. Mailer stepped in to assume the reins at Bishop Museum. She previously served on the board. Her return to the institution was triggered by the removal of CEO Melanie Ide and two of her executive team, uh, legal counsel Baron Oda and CFO Wesley Kaiviyun, following complaints of a toxic workplace. Ide, uh, uh, Oda, and Yoon were put on leave during the internal probe. And for a decade, Mailer served as CEO of Kamehameha Schools Bishop Estate. She also served previously as head of Kaiser Permanente Hawaii. We talked to her recently about her return to the museum during troubled times. Three thoughts came to mind when I first walked into the museum. One was 
I'm back working with the bishops again, Kaylee Ibernis Pawahi and Mr. Charles Reed. That will be my third time being in their presence and knowing that I need to push their legacy forward. And that's what our mission and our vision are all about. You know, if you look at the words behind those two statements, it really is about taking care of children and family and helping people learn and carrying forth knowledge and perpetuating that knowledge. And so the more we can do that, the more we can share the knowledge that we have in ways that people understand, then we will be fulfilling their mission and vision. We do have a strategic plan. And when I walked in, I thought, well, I better read this because this will help me to understand where we're going. And in fact, it's a great plan. I think we have a three-year plan right now, and it actually ended 2023. But for me, it doesn't end, it goes forward. So our teams, our leadership, our staff, our board are all sort of marching to that drum still. It's a big plan. So my team is going to be working in the next month to look at it again and see, hmm, how far have we gone on the priorities? Uh, which priorities still are most meaningful right now? Which ones aren't? because we, don't ha we have finite resources. We can't just do everything. So we'll figure that out uh, based on our current experience of what's important right now. And then we will focus on those priorities first and give our staff some chance to breathe because it has been a roller coaster ride for them. Yeah, and, and you know, I know uh, folks who supported Melody Ide's work. Mm -hmm. You know, we're saying that she has helped to elevate, you know, the image of the institution, you know, internationally. Yes. And they're worried, you know, well, you know, are, are we going to be able to follow through with some mm -hmm. of these things and and keep the high standard? Yeah. When I read through the strategic plan, clearly her brilliance is there. And I was so grateful because I didn't have to create that, nor do I have time to create it. So yes, you're right. And many of the things that she uh, put in place uh, before she left are actually already progressing. So for instance, I talked about the digital work that's going on. That was part of creating this large database whereby we can share knowledge. So that is probably you know three or four years out to get everything done but it's already there. We didn't have any IT infrastructure to handle that. Now we do. Uh, we didn't have the staff to do it because it takes special staff. We do. We didn't have the leader to do it. And now we have this wonderful woman, Melissa Tulig, who has all of the capability of doing it because she did it before on the continent. So fast forward, we are digitizing different parts of our um, botany and molecology and those science places and we're also starting to digitize our archives and our library and some of our collections and what we're doing is we're also digitizing at the same time under another project our new paper our hawaiian newspapers we received a grant to bring the newspapers many of them are work being worked on by others but some of them are coming to us and we're putting those in our database as well and I think the beauty of that work, not only is it because in the 1800s, our newspapers were the only ones, therefore that's our history. Putting those in is important, but the hands that are doing it are amazing. They're young people, you know, graduates of my school and others who have in their you know, hearts and minds the need to do this right and they want to learn how. So not only are they doing this service for all of us, but they're also learning how to do this. And some of them are thinking about their new careers around it because everybody's digitizing now. Yes, I mean, we saw the work that's ongoing at the State Archives that's underway at Ulu Ulu, mm -hmm. the Moving mm -hmm. Images mm -hmm. you know, Archives. And so, yeah, definitely we have to protect all of that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, okay, so, so that's then, you know, the project to kind of move us forward. What does the museum need to do to bring more bodies to the museum, whether it's school children or visitors? What's right. the plan? Right. Well, before I, can I go back to the digital futures mm -hmm. just for a second? Because there's an important piece that's coming out of it based on staff saying, I think we need to tell stories. So because if you imagine a library with all kinds of books and you really don't know where all the information is, First, you have to catalog things. That's what you have to do here. What we're doing in, in addition to that is we're learning how to bring different pieces from different parts of the database and tell stories because that's what becomes relevant for our children, for our families, for our visitors, for you know people doing research. So DeSoto Brown, as well as a number of our other library and archives and cultural practitioners 
are telling stories. It's called Mao Mao Ke Loa, and that's what it's in the um, website right now. Just a few stories that they're kind of playing with. They're putting it in. And then they're going to be increasing those amount of stories as we go. So it's oral history overview kind of thing? Um, it is oral history, so Mao Ke Leo. Um, it's, but it's more than just oral history. It's actually creating stories. Let me give you an example. So one, one of our curators in our ethnology group uh, does tapa. And she has, she's actually quite an artist that, in that realm. And one of her pieces has a design. It's a, uh, I think it's a diamond design that she does. And that diamond design comes directly from some of our natural science collections because it's all driven from nature. So that's an example of taking information from natural science, putting it together with cultural arts, and telling a story about that particular design and its meaning. So giving context. Exactly. And so she, they're doing it a lot. In fact, here's the other one. Um, DeSoto Brown found a very old picture of Iolani Palace, and he found out through our cultural practitioner, Hanalei Marquez, Hanalei's got um, some pictures and some information about some hats that Princess Ruth wore as well as Bernice Powahi Bishop wore. Those hats are made out of materials that came from the renovation of Iolani Palace. So there's the story about all of that from these two separate pieces of data. Okay, so and that's just what really, Mao Kaleo is. So just to add the richness yes. and the depth yeah. of what we're looking at. Yeah. So yes. how do we improve the numbers at the turnstiles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, right now we're seeing probably anywhere from 400 to 500 people a day, all kinds of people, and then on the weekends it's more. And what we're doing is we're looking at the visitor industry and we have people who are focused on the various inlets through that industry, whether it be you know the, the travel bureaus, whether it be hotels. So we have someone who's focused on that. The Japanese are coming back, and we have trained educators to take them around who speak Japanese, so that's been great. We probably need to hire a couple more people there because there's a lot of Japanese tourists coming back. Also, we've got a lot of students coming. I, I came to work one day, there were 10 buses lined up. And so, um, they all, they're multiple ages, uh, and we've got uh, multiple schools. Many of them are public schools, but all, also private schools as well. So they're coming back, and they have all kinds of educational opportunities to learn from. They can go out on the campus and look at our hydroponics on our gardens. They can go into the Science Center, and soon they'll see snails. And they can go into Hawaiian Hall, Pacific Hall, and also our exhibits there. What we're looking at doing for students and this is something that right now I'm just uh, kind of doing the lay of the land about it, is I wonder if we could give some high school students or some pre-college students some intense learning and experiences with our collections. So having them work with scientists in our natural science, like the malacologists, and learning about how important those snails are to our environment and our biodiversity, and helping them to learn about research, helping them to know about how do you get things into the genetic lab, that's a career path for those mm -hmm. kids, and it'll get them so excited about school. So, And that can happen on culture or exhibits or anything. That was DJ Mailer, uh, who has stepped in uh, as interim CEO of Bishop Museum. We'll have more of our conversation with her, but let's take a short break. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. About a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's 3 That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. 
Let's return to our conversation with DJ Mailer, interim CEO of Bishop Museum. She discusses the museum's future plans, including the return of the popular volcano exhibit and student outreach. One of the last times I was at the museum, you folks were offering tours, and it was thanks to a grant through HTA yes. at the time. And I don't know if there are other ways that you folks are looking to help with this piece on regenerative tourism and how we can elevate the experience for our visitors. So, yes, we still work with HTA, and they've been very gracious um, with giving us whatever monies we need to enhance the visitor experience. But what we are also doing, and and you must know this, is we're having more of our visitors actually go behind the scenes. We have special groups that come in that we put behind the scenes, and they actually speak to the people doing the work back there. They are amazed. They are amazed at at what we do. For the present as well as the past, they they don't know that our people, culturally and scientifically, are doing things that matter today, right today. So that's what we're doing, as well as we are hosting, like we said, school groups and also teachers to come in. Mm -hmm. Because teachers want to know how to better involve students in their learning, especially around what we have. So they're coming in and they're all getting behind the scenes. Then we have many new visitors then going to our after hours um, events. And many of them are our communities. So, you know, we smack dab right in the middle of the Ahupua'a for the bishops, we have all of these neighbors and friends who get to come on our after-hour nights. We also have science festivals. We have Micronesian festivals. So the content festivals are really important to visitors as well, and they flock. Mm-hmm. We're talking one to 2,000 people come yeah. for those events. Well, as part of the strategic plan, I mean, is it your goal to increase, I don't know, like the visitor numbers by a certain percentage? We don't. I. We don't have percentages, but we do want to increase the visitor, and as well as the uh, visitor mix. So we're looking on other Asian groups as well and whether they're coming in. We don't see um, sort of the continent side picking up as much as we would want. We're also working, I'm, I met with Kuhil Lewis at CNHA when I came home, wanted to know more about what they were doing, and he said we ought to work together because they are trying to attract more tourists as well. And so if we, we can create a unified experience between Bishop Museum, Iolani Palace, and create maybe those kinds of events where we can show tourists the line of what happened during those times, that would be very helpful. So between CNHA and others, we're going to find ways to improve that experience, not just for us. Right, but it, it, more on the management and the kind of the authentic yes. cultural true picture of what yeah. goes on here in a way. And, and, and the linear picture. So, you know, looking at, uh, is it um, the story of obviously the takeover, but importantly, there were stories before that that included other places besi- besides Iolani Palace and then ended up sort of where we are at the Bishop Museum. So starting to, to make a continual line of that story. That, that Kuhio says, is a really important message that people want to hear and see, mm-hmm. not something here and something there. Right. Are there any plans to expand physic- physically on the property that you can talk about just in general? You know. We, we need to refresh our campus plan. I think it's old. I remember when I was on the board <laughs> uh, and we were doing it then, and I'm sure it's been refreshed, but we need to refresh it. Uh, we, we are looking at ways of expanding our cafe because it's small and mm-hmm. we know that uh, it can have a lot more people be there. Um, so we're looking at expanding that. We're looking at refreshing all of our buildings. They're all old, even the newest one. Right. So the planetarium, I'm so excited about because we're going to be refurbishing it and it's going to have a new camera for all of the star lighting that, that we want to see. Kids and families flock to that experience. The other thing that's coming back in our science museum that's been gone for a while is our volcano. Right. Everybody wants to see that. So back to the campus plan, yes, we will refresh that and look at where there are spaces outside of the initial campus that we might use as well. Anything else you want to uh, underscore? You know, as we as I walked into the museum and I was looking at things, I realized that all of the things that we have are brought alive by our people. And they are so incredibly intelligent, so incredibly practiced, and they're resilient. And they really are re- resilient. You mentioned that when I came, um, there were three important leaders gone. 
And so I now have a full leadership team. I'm thankful that our general counsel from past came back. Uh, that's great, Ray Kong, because he knows the people there. And then we also have a great CFO. I sat there when I first came on board. I said, okay, I have no legal counsel and I have no CFO. So my CFO is Greg Chang. He's got tons of experience from the Hawaii Federal Credit Union. So we're set with our leadership team. And I brought everyone that you know wasn't connected in some way to a leader because some, some had yeah. left. I brought them underneath And then did you have folks have to change any policies? because of the departure of the three? No, we're reviewing them to make sure that they're relevant today because many of the policies and procedures need to be updated. But we didn't have to change anything. We changed some of our recruiting practices and we've looked at our salaries for our people to make sure that there were not disparities between people of same work. So we've closed gaps there. And importantly, so the three things I said I would do when I came in was secure the people, and that's what, that's what we've done to the extent we'd love to pay them more, and we will mm -hmm. in the future. And securing the people also makes sure that they have, they have an understanding of that they're safe, because it is a rocky road at the Bishop Museum. And we just went through a, an experience called Healo a Healo. What that means is face-to-face. What it means is that we've put people through two days, full days, of experiential learning about what makes us tick as human beings. And then what makes us tick better when we collaborate with each other? Because like many organizations, we have silos. And they're very specific silos. And then what's the third thing? So secure the people, secure the funding. We talked a bit about mm -hmm. that. And then secure the strategic priority okay. going forward. Those are the three things that I'm focused on. And then can I ask you, because I've always wondered about this, and I know you sat on the, the KS Bishop Estate Board, because there were always folks that said, you know, my schools should take over the museum. Can you talk about that at all? I just was curious. Well, let's see. I was at both places. So Kamehameha Schools and the estate is a different kuleana versus the Bishop Museum. However, they all fall within the same family. So people ask me, why doesn't Kamehameha fund, you know, the Bishop Museum? And there are things that they do fund, but not the Bishop Museum as an ongoing concern because their trust is for the education with preference for Native Hawaiian children. So there is an estate, Charles Reed Bishop Trust, that does fund us on an ongoing basis. And it's not as much as Kamehameha could afford, afford but it's, it's very helpful. And what we do get funded though, or that we do partner with Kamehameha all the time, is in educating their students, our students, in giving them experiences that they can't have on campus, We've also got a lot of their um, boxes of midden. It's dirt and things like that that ha might have artifacts or mm. EV in them. So we still have a number of those. We invited their students, their high school students, to come down. And we schooled them through, how do you take care of these? So they opened the boxes. They, they looked through them. They looked to see what they could find. They took out what they could find. They marked them, categorized them and put them in cases, and then they took them back to Kamehameha for proper either showing or mm -hmm. proper burial. So there's all kinds of things that Kamehameha does with us, and I hope more as we talk more about uh, creating more deep educational programs right. as well as wide. But, but as far as any financial or, uh, like I said, with the discussions with Bishop Asate at the time, if that came up? They'd have to fundamentally change their estate and their trust in order to do that, and that would be under the court's approval. Okay. So, you know, I mean, having been the CEO there, I know how important it is to keep that trust and estate with fidelity to what Bernice Powahi Bishop wanted. And that's what the trustees do constantly. Right. The bright line. Yeah. Because okay. if there isn't a bright line, then others step in and want it to. That was a candid conversation with DJ Mailer, who agreed to step in to serve as interim CEO of the Bishop Museum following the removal of three top officials earlier this year.
weekend marked Queen Liu Kalani's 185th birthday. NHPR was there at Schofield Barracks Army Base on Friday to mark her connection to what is known as the Soldier's Chapel. Members of, of Royal Hawaiian Societies took part in a gathering started in 2015 to recall how in 1913 the Queen traveled across the island to donate a pair of bronze vases when it was first dedicated. The chapel was used by 13,000 soldiers from the newly established Schofield Barracks. Hey, Army historian David Crowley, who's with the Army's Cultural Resources Program, says with the passage of time, the chapel was rebuilt. It's unclear what happened to the vases, but a plaque and the Queen's picture hangs in the chapel entrance. Thanks to the efforts of Kahu Kaleo Patterson, St. Stephen's Church, and the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center and the U.S. Army, this annual event recalls that time in history. It started with an interest in just learning about the history and developing a relationship with the Army, and trying to bring the community and the Army together around Queen Kalani and her birthday. And uh, so we've just kind of been working it, yeah, working it and, and uh, learning from each other. And the Hawaiian societies start, start, have started to come in. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're hoping it's, it's, it's going to be a, a development uh, that uh, enhances uh, our community understanding of the army and um, that we're working together to build a you know a better place that Lily Okalani uh, envisioned in her own life it's interesting that in 1913 when the uh, chapel was dedicated by the bishop and a minister from Central Union Church that in itself was a, a symbol of uh, reconciliation I think and, uh, but uh, after the chapel was built for uh, 13,000 soldiers that were here, we have, we have the war starting up, World War II. And then, and then the queen died in uh, 1917. Uh, a, a year later, the war ended, I think. And um, so that date, but that date has become a, a date now. The Episcopal Church uh, commemorates uh, the Queen as a saint on no November. Yeah, that history is really significant because, you know, the Queen has the chapel and then she's at the end of the of the war, right. November 17th, yes. Yeah, so. can, can you explain, if you can explain the significance, you know, when you think of the Queen coming up here, why would she do this? What, why is this uh, symbolic, this, this church? Yeah, I, so I, I think uh, the church, it, it, it uh, helps us to understand more deeply her faith. You know, she was a Christian. Uh, she had problems with uh, the missionary church. Uh, she left Kauai Ha'o Church. After she was imprisoned, uh, she was ministered to by the Episcopal Church, which was founded by Kamehameha IV. That history is really interesting to look at how the, the role of the, of the churches in developing in Hawaii uh, was part of the history and the politics of, of the day. And so if we follow how the movements of the Queen and, and her journey of faith, it's, it's really interesting uh, what she did after, uh, you know, the uh, release from prison going into the Episcopal Church and then and then just participating with the army and engaging with the army and uh, this uh, place uh, you know the, uh, the the royal lands you know is, is significant and uh, she probably felt it was very important that there was some activity on behalf of the Hawaiians uh, in uh, this uh, sacred lands Vahipana Lelehua, yeah, Kukani Loko, you know, all of that. And um, so she wanted to leave something behind that would always cause us to remember the history of these lands and not just give it over to the, uh, the, the United States Army. And then the, the uh, Army's uh, historian here talked about the, the link to the land, because this was part of Kalakaua's ranch. Yes, yes. Yeah, so there was, uh, the Kalakaua had his uh, uh, ranch here, his 
uh, retreat uh, home. And so the chapel was built uh, across the street from from his uh, lands that had a house and, uh, you know, other things. So so that kind of tells uh, some of us that, you know, she really had a special feeling for this place. And to be asked to do something on this land was, was an opportunity for her to reconnect the land and to, you know, um, remind us about the history of this place. Yeah. So we, we appreciate that, that we're learning more about that and that the, the army is uh, opening up about that history. We've had little history in the community about the queen's role and the role of Kalakaua on these army lands. And uh, more so, these are army lands, not the lands of Kalakaua or the queen. But now we're hoping that that history can become more balanced and more prominent in the community and what's being taught in our schools. And uh, this is a you know, excellent uh, um, history uh, that should be in the community, should be told and taught to all the soldiers that come to Schofield. Yeah. And you're about reconciliation and the fact yeah. that we have so many members of the Royal Societies here who maybe have n had not been here before. Yeah, yes. Uh, so bringing the Hawaiians to Schofield, a land that was territorialized, you know, we lose the history if we don't use the land, if we're not on the land. We lose our connection, we lose our history. So this, this chapel uh, ceremony every year on the Queen's birthday, you know, it's a very important event to keep everybody connected and, and, to, and to somehow develop a relationship with the, with the Army that's uh, different than uh, uh, what we've had in the past. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we can learn together about this land and, um, and um, be, 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 be good, gracious yeah, about be, the history. Be gracious and be good community partners, yeah. And that was Kahu Kaleo Patterson of St. Stephen's and the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. The service at the Soldier's Chapel featured special music performed by musician and University of Hawaii professor John Osorio. It was the anthem that the Queen originally composed for the kingdom that was eventually changed to Hawaii Ponui by King Kalakaua. But we leave you with the Queen's mele, mele lahui Hawaii, as we remember her birthday. Come it up for us today. As we mark a month since the deadly fires, we do invite you to share your memories of Lahaina. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation uh, episodes on our webpage or on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune in to listen to podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.